Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics podcast. I'm Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Jeff Black from St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, we have Andrea Radisanu returning, uh, who you'll remember from our um, pod on Thucydides, which we're doing again today. And we explored Pericles' funeral oration and the Athenian response to the plague. And we're back with Andrea from more Thucydides. Andrea, welcome back. Thank you. I'm excited to be back for the Big Bad Sicilian Expedition. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the Big Bad Sicilian Expedition in Thucydides, book six and seven. And Jeff's going to give a little overview of that and open us up with the question. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. So for our listeners, what we read for today is uh, roughly the first um, 30 chapters of uh, book six of the Peloponnesian War and the last 30 chapters of book seven. Uh, Thucydides' chapters are pretty short, so that wasn't a, a terribly huge reading, but it, what it did is it bookends the beginning and the end of the Sicilian expedition. And we thought this is a good thing to talk about um, because Thucydides says the whole reason he wrote his history was that he wanted to relate and depict the greatest event in human history that he knew of. And uh, within this event, the Peloponnesian War, he reports that the Sicilian expedition in which Athens tries to invade the whole island to conquer the whole island of Sicily was the greatest um, event in this greatest event that he depicts, the Peloponnesian War. So it seemed worth uh, our attention. And I was particularly interested in the question of whether the Sicilian expedition is a good idea or a bad idea. Now, it might seem obvious to anybody who uh, remembers a little bit about Thucydides and the history that it's a bad idea because uh, Athens fails in its Sicilian expedition. And it's pretty reasonable to say uh, not only does it fail, but its failure is the reason that Athens eventually loses the Peloponnesian War to Sparta. And so I'm interested in thinking about um, not just whether it was a good idea in light of what happened, because it's pretty easy to be an armchair general and criticize things once you know how they're going to turn out. I'm interested especially in at least starting with the question of whether it was a good idea, uh, whether it seemed like a good idea, uh, not knowing how it ended. In other words, just knowing how things led up to the expedition. And so that's the first 30 chapters of book six. And I just wanted to point out a couple things, and then we can talk about what we think about them. Um, the first is that Thucydides says that after a bunch of speeches are given by Alcibiades and, and Nicias, two um, of the generals who are going to be leading this expedition, after their speeches, the Athenians fall in love with the idea of going to Sicily and invading it and conquering it. And then uh, Thucydides says, well, a little bit later, after they've completed their preparations and they're getting their fleet together, and they're all going to sail out on one day. The Athenians go down to the harbor to see this fleet. And while they're initially uh, frightened because they suddenly realize what a big endeavor they've embarked on, um, they also notice that their fleet assembled there is beautiful. Uh, everybody, every captain has tried to make their ship beautiful. The whole armament altogether looks beautiful. And so I wanted to start by asking us what we think about those two reactions that the Athenians had. Uh, first, when talking about the expedition that they fell in love with it, and second, when seeing the armament 
that they thought it was beautiful. Um, what's our judgment of those uh, two things? Are those good signs for the Sicilian expedition or are they signs that things are gonna go badly? Well, there's two kind of like military aphorisms that jump out at me um, immediately, which is first, don't fall in love with your plan. And like as a commander, like you can certainly do that. Uh, and the other one is uh, there's a, a lovely little Facebook page called the Warfighting Society that spends a lot of time on aphorisms. And um, there's one by Colonel Tom Blackman that they put up like all the time. And it's basically like um, war is the only metric for a successful military and everything else is advertising. Um, and so there's a bit of that in the prettying of the ships. Um, the, the fact that they are kind of looking at spit and polish as the British Navy used to call it, uh, instead of effectiveness in war. So it seems like, uh, Thucydides is implicitly, um, kind of foreshadowing or maybe explicitly foreshadowing the failure by highlighting these things because to somebody who's been in the military and has, and kind of at least thinks they know those things. It's like, Ooh, Ooh, you're, you're, you've already, you've already broken two rules, which is to fall in love with your plan and to spend a lot of your time uh, on spit and polish versus, you know, practicing what you're supposed to be doing, which is preparing for war. I guess it, it depends on what war is for, right? Because uh, I'm, I guess putting Jeff's question together um, and this piece of, you know, the beautiful site um, and so forth together uh, with the Sicilian archeology, span which is the first bit, you know, that, of what we read. So before we hear how the Athenians are gonna go, um, we get this, we get the kind of, well, here's a kind of history of how Sicily got going. And one of the things that strikes me about that is the fact that, you know, that Sicily's been conquered a thousand times over. You can't tell who belonged there in the first place. Any and all claims to, um, to the rights to the land seem problematic. But still, the Greeks, you know, well before the Athenians obviously ever come up with this plan, the Greeks come under different guise than every other people, it would seem. They come with founders and they, you know, they have colonists and then they, re, you know, then they refound. They're just obsessively doing these things. Everybody else, in other words, comes for some sort of kind of uh, practical reason. <laughs> you know, they're hungry, they're refugees, they're being driven off land. The Greeks seem to just show up for the pleasure of founding which reminds me of this Athenian moment, right? I mean, why are they doing this? It's not because they're hungry. It's not because it will immediately help them win against the Spart Spartans. It has nothing to do with that war in, in a sense. I mean, it, you could, and Alcibiades makes a different sort of argument, but still, you know, clearly there's something voluntary about this. There's no claim to necessity, right? So. I don't know, I think, yeah, I think we cringe in, in any sort of modern military or political way to, to find them just sort of happily taking on, although scared, but happily, in a sense, finding beauty in, in a kind of imperial 
enterprise. So it's just so different, I think, than are they even looking to win, you know, or how, how, are, how do those hope manifest themselves in, 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 in those guys? Yeah, it's it's interesting to me when he enumerates the uh, content of the um, love that the various groups feel. I was struck by this. This is in chapter 24 or section 24 of um, book six. Here's what Thucydides says in my translation. Everyone fell in love with the enterprise. The older men thought that they would either subdue the places against which they were to sail or at all events with so large a force meet with no disaster. Those in the prime of life felt a longing for foreign sights and spectacles and had no doubt that they should come safe home again. While the idea of the common people and the soldiery was to earn wages at the moment and to make conquests that would supply a never ending fund of pay for the future. With this enthusiasm of the majority, I take it that's the common people and the soldiery, uh, the few that did not like it feared to appear unpatriotic by holding up their hands against it and so kept quiet. Um, and a couple of things jump out at me here. Uh, it looks like there's no, Thucydides doesn't characterize what the young feel about the expedition. Maybe Alcibiades does that enough on his own. Um, and the other uh, two groups, aside from the, the common people and the soldiery, the other two groups, it looks like uh, the thought is whatever happens, it'll be okay. So that there's, there's something about safety in here. And that just struck me as an odd conjunction with erotic desire. So I, th I think we can take this apart. But yeah, I take uh, Andrea's question, you know, do, do they want to win? Do they want to conquer it? It looks like some people maybe are driven by um, a concern for insecurity in the future. Those would be the common people and the soldiers. They might have some, some feeling like it's necessary for them to go. But uh, the others look like they're not driven by really any interest or necessity, any pressing necessity at all. Yeah, the, the, safe, the safety versus the beauty of conquest or something like that. I guess that's, that's mirrored in the general speeches or attitudes also. You know, Nicias is concerned about safety, doesn't want to do this. So, I mean, for the, you know, um, Brian, is, is Nicias your spokesman, <laughs> you know, on, on that front? The, and Alcibiades is saying, uh, no, let's do this. Those, but, but, you know, it ultimately, I mean, to, to the point of kind of military uh, good or bad ideas, you know, um, it is important, even though Alcibiades is the one who's got sort of stars in his eyes, if you will, and maybe represents, you know, the, 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 that sort of the young man that isn't mentioned as, as directly in that description. I mean, the weird thing about that is that Alcibiades is not the one saying, let's make this so grand, right? He said, let's, let's have a, he was suggesting a force of 60 ships, which had already existed, that had occurred before. They'd already sent, um, Athens, you know, three books earlier had sent 60 sh ships and engaged with, um, with several of the cities in Sicily. So he's saying, and he's saying, let's divide and conquer. Like they, they're in a civil war up there. They've got problems. We can go exploit that. Uh, Nicias in, in his desire for safety says, I'm not, you know, I'm not going up there without like, you know, double this thing. And the, you know, and he thought that maybe they would just call it off if he's going to say that, but they're like, 
oh, doubling it or close to it. That sounds amazing, right? So the way this grew into the most beautiful site and sort of terrible at the same time that anyone had ever seen in a way is like the guy who's super scared is the one who inspired the largeness of it, which then ironically made it sort of erotically beautiful for those who beheld it. So I, I've always been interested in that, you know, dynamic. Can you guys, can you guys tease out what you mean, you know, Jeff mentioned sexual desire and Andrew, you mentioned like the eroticism of it. And I feel like I'm not picking up on that. <laughs> at all. Yeah. So I, can you explain no. a little what you mean by that? I, I think it's the oddity of this thought that makes it interesting to me. And I think it's here in Thucydides and I think it's actually not um, that outlandish. Here's, here's just a, a little example of maybe uh, a current event relevance to this kind of thought. Um, when you think about the um, militarization of civilian policing and the desire on the part of civilian police to have um, impressive military equipment, you might think that there's something akin to what Thucydides is pointing to here going on in that case as well. And so mm -hmm. I thought maybe trying to get on the inside of what these folks are imagining and seeing then when they see the resulting armament um, would be helpful. Um, but I do want to underline the point that you made, Brian, also that, uh, you know, if we're looking from uh, at this from a perspective of civil military relations, right, this is a situation where military professionalism is lacking, right? In other words, neither uh, Nicias nor Alcibiades is speaking from a purely military perspective in Huntington's sense, Right, the sense of the military professional who's chiefly concerned with war fighting capacity. Um, they're both speaking from a dangerous mix of civilian and uh, military concerns, right? And their motives for uh, suggesting the force, for expanding the force come from the civilian world as well, from the military world. And maybe this is, it might be the case, it's at least arguable that this is part of where the difficulty is coming from. But uh, yeah, so you're asking about the erotic attraction. Um, at, it's at least, I think, connected with this sense that um, the ships are beautiful and their existence and their power is somehow beautiful. The way seeing uh, a powerful human being of whatever sex you tend to be drawn toward might also be beautiful as well. Um, does that make sense as a, as a way to start thinking about an attraction towards an expedition, strangely enough? To a degree, but when as you were kind of talking, my I was kind of envisioning the um, red Corvette convertible, you know, after the divorce as <laughs> a way to signal kind of sexual virility um, as sad opposed to actually eroticism. Yeah, right, say right. sad eroticism. And so you only know, if you love the car, like is the car a means to getting a girl or is the car an object of affection? Well, I saw it more as like Athens and Sparta just had a bad breakup. And so Athens wants to show Sparta that they still got it. So they're going to get this right convertible and cruise around to kind of show up Sparta and that the Syracuse expedition is <laughs> the, the convertible red Corvette. Well, one thing that interests me too, uh, that, that, that reminds me of is that in the last bit of what Jeff read out loud, those few who are not overcome by whatever this feeling is. And I think I associate the kind of arrows here with a kind of hopefulness. So whatever it is that you want 
it seems to be like your hopes get uh, inflamed and and the thing that you most want whether it's money or safety or something a little less tangible um like the men in their full vigor um then you know it, it just all of a sudden you somehow feel like you you want to get you you have that and you're at your in your grasp you know ap apart from and totally divorced from any kind of plan you know between a and b um, but yeah, what, what about those, those fellows who aren't overtaken by this, you know? Um, and one of the things where, as far as like whether we're, where we are in the breakup with Sparta, this is what reminded me of this point, um, where we are with that is that it's kind of a cold war, you know, it'd been seven years of rebuilding, um, he goes, Thucydides sometimes goes so far as to say, you know, that things were great you know and, and Nicias that 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 also has something to do with how Nicias was feeling it's like what the heck my 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 estate is doing great um I'm richer than ever and I'm safe like why do I need to be unsafe and risk any any of these things um so you know Athens could possibly have left well enough alone at that point you know or you can have Alcibiades view which is Sparta is not much of a threat right now, and it's going to be scared. It's going to scare its pants off if, in the middle of all of this, we go and do this thing, which, by the way, isn't as difficult as you might think. Um, but yeah, but then there's like, who are these other people? So you know, there's there is there's there's maybe like Alcibiades isn't nuts when in what he says. Maybe Nicias isn't nuts in what he says. But um, ultimately, like, who do we have in that camp of people who think this is? They're not, you know, they're not erotically overtaken with love of this expedition. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? Well, the first thing I think I can take from what you said that helps move me forward is, is that um, you're turning our attention from, I guess, what I call a narrowly sexual interpretation of eroticism to a future-oriented interpretation of eroticism, right? So that what this military means or what it looks like is something like confidence in the future, expectation of future strength, right? And so the, the way you get from one to the other is you might interpret um, sexual desire as somehow being uh, rooted in uh, hope for better from the future on the part of living beings, right? Something along those lines. Um, now, there are complications uh, to that involving children and so on. But at any rate, you know, if, if the erotic is really um, future-oriented, then maybe we could say that even the common people in the soldiery in that passage that I read, um, uh, what Thucydides says is uh, their idea was to earn wages at the moment and make conquests that would supply a never-ending fund of pay for the future. So maybe even their more hard-headed or calculating approach to it still has um, a piece of the erotic because it has a piece of something like eternal life. Um, hidden in the back. Uh, we're currently uh, feeling necessity. We currently have to fight uh, because of our economic situation. But maybe if we pull this off, we won't have to do that in the future. So can we bring them under the umbrella of uh, the erotic, but with a slightly different tone to it? Does that seem fair? Yeah, I don't yeah. think you're, I don't think you're stretching, you know, the, the sexual metaphor at all. Um, and to to provide like additional 
kind of uh, resonance to that. You know, I remember um, like I run a catering company. This is going to be a little bit of a sidebar, but I run a catering company um, that employs female refugees. And uh, I remember being at like a panel discussion where the CEO and founder of this company was kind of talking about, it's called break bread, break borders. So there's this whole penetrative um, kind of concept to it. And um, the founder's an artist and we were talking about just kind of the, um, how people and food kind of breaks down ideological barriers. And so I kind of asked the panel this question and, and just said, you know, what what is it about um, the penetrative nature of, you know, taking in sustenance, um, the, the sexual, you know, kind of penetrative nature, um, and ideas, because those are like the three things that we take from without and, you know, put inside of ourselves or, you know, inside of someone else. And what is it about those three things that, you know, are in common? Um, and violence is one of those things too, right? When we commit violence against something, someone else, we are kind of penetrating what we see as some, another thing. Um, and it's, you know, that is, uh, you can see the same thing with, you know, they're invading another country. And so what is this quest to penetrate um, and to like gain dominance over that is true in both like warfare and sex and to a certain degree ideas? Mm -hmm. Like, why do we need to force our ideas into people? And I feel like that is, you know, potentially a sexual urge or I'm just being like a 13 year old boy and just <laughs> constantly thinking about sex. It's one of the two. No, I, I think it's always wise when trying to understand, you know, Greek, con the Greek conception of arrows never to leave sex too far behind. So yeah, my, mine was probably too clean <laughs> and it was, it was, it was, it was missing that penetrative um, issue. I mean, I guess you, I, I, so I think that was super helpful. I, I will add though that, you know, it, it what there is a kind of a conquest to wh whereas there's a kind of kind of imperialism to sex and to conquest together in the way that you were describing it also there's also the desire to have it be something more like eminently meaningful that it's not just that and you want those you are conquering to accept you. Like, so you, like a, more, a kind of, in honor of Lise, a more Nietzschean, um, you know, kind of full, the real conquest is one where the one who's conquered fully appreciates being conquered, you know, sees you for the wonderful conqueror that you are. Um, so there's a kind of, I mean, it's always complicated, isn't it? Like you always want, you'll, you want to be loved in return. So there's, there's this whole mess of things and it certainly reminds, um, reminds us a little bit if hopefully the listeners can would also have listened to the Pericles podcast, but you know, Pericles can't not think of Pericles, right? Pericles wanted the Athenians to feel this way about Athens and now they do. And in fact, I think there are maybe two or three mentions of the word arrows throughout this entire giant book. And that's two of them where, where he wants, where Pericles wants that to be the case. And now where it is the case, you know, in, in undertaking an expedition, which ironically he would have been very much against. Mm -hmm. So just for some more context. 
Yeah, there are a couple interesting things in Alcibiades' speech that flesh out that uh, that notion of wanting to be loved in return. Um, one goes one way, one goes the other, and it seems to me that Alcibiades might have a fairly uh, nuanced understanding of this hope and this desire. So the first thing is in um, chapter 17, where Alcibiades uh, talks about the um, Sicilians as a mob and lacking unity. And uh, he portrays it in a kind of strategic or even tactical con context, right? The, the hope or the certainty is that the, um, uh, the Sicilians will not uh, act in a united way against the invading Athenian force, but will defect piecemeal as uh, terms can be arrived at with them so that they won't really put up much of a fight. Um, but I take it that part of the uh, implication there is that they'll be uh, more united, they'll be given more unity as part of the Athenian Empire than they have currently in their diffuse, uh, some barbarian, some Ionian, some Dorian state, um, all of them feuding with one another. So yeah, you could think of Athens as giving meaning to Sicily by incorporating it, right? And that's both the sense in which the conquest could be meaningful um, and also the sense in which, uh, you know, the, the incorporation in Brian's image uh, could yield some, some kind of growth, right? Something that's more than was there before, right? So that looks like it's a hope that Alcibiades alludes to. On the other hand, he has this interesting discussion at the beginning of his speech where he says, um, he's defending himself against being a wastrel. And he says, oh, I funded all these horses at the Olympic Games and uh, I won all these prizes and I conducted myself like a winner. And then he says, custom regards such displays as honorable and they cannot be made without leaving behind them an impression of power. Um, but I think he, he gives, uh, he kind of admits that this impression of power isn't entirely true, right? That there's more sizzle than steak, for example, in his private display um, of magnificence at the Olympic Games. And so I wonder whether he might himself have some reservations about the truth of this um, story of incorporation that he is, is uh, presenting to the Athenians, even though he knows its power. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's right. And he, he's also, I mean, his story, which we don't get in full by looking at the beginning and the end of the Sicilian expedition. Like we don't, we, we, we well, we do get some interesting pieces. We know that um, he definitely becomes a jilted lover, if you will, of Athens, you know, to go along with this theme that we've sort of started to, uh, to probe. So that he's an, he's definitely, I think an interesting, an interesting figure there. And he goes over to Sparta, but he really doesn't have much choice. Um, since Athens wants to put him to death at that point, still, you know, he, it, it, you know, the, the, he, he might be a kind of Achilles, like he's going to help Sparta well enough so that um, he's needed back to save Athens. So that, you know, the complications here, he wants to be powerful, he wants to be seen as better and as deserving of his role all at the same time. Or he's a dirty traitor. I mean, I suppose that's that's always on the table. 
Now, we've talked a little bit about Alcibiades, but we haven't said very much about his uh, counterpart, Nicias. Um, and maybe if the line we're pursuing here is that um, we, we could have known that there was a problem uh, about the Sicilian expedition from the start if we had thought more about erotic attraction right? If we knew more about it, we could have seen there was something problematic at the beginning. Um, is Nicias's difficulty, and is the reason why in trying to discourage the Sicilian expedition, he ends up encouraging it because he doesn't understand sex at all? Is that his problem? <laughs> That's got to be true. <laughs> <laughs> what, whatever else is, is the case. Can I actually bound that back with your other, the other focus that you've brought to us, which is whether the Sicilian expedition needed to fail? Yeah. I mean, it's clearly a bad idea in that it does fail, but what, you know, what about it, what makes it fail? So, I mean, just, this is, you know, I think Nicias makes it fail, which is interesting. So, I, I mean, I want to know, I, 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 maybe you disagree with this. I can, I, I'll make my case. Um, and I just wonder what, what, where that leads us frame-wise, right? Because if, if it's a bad idea to, do, to go to Sicily and do this, and Nicias is the one who says, don't do it, he seems to be the smartest guy in the room at that moment. Um, but, you know, my view is that if they had left Alcibiades in charge doing the things he was meant to do, um, it would have been fine. Um, if the whole premise that Nicias has is that Sicily is just too big and too powerful to take over, um, Thucydides at any, at maybe three or four really important points disputes that. He, he, he sort of gives a nod to Alcibiades' view that they're a motley crew. Uh, Hermocrates comes in after that going, hey, motley crew, we're going to have to shape up or Athens is going to take us over way back when we did our last podcast at the at, at 265 um thucydides tells us hey when we go forward and do the athenian expedition it's going to fail because of infighting in athens it's going to fail because you take the good the the guy who needs to do the job off the um off off the job and then we learned that there are charges that are trumped up that are political that have um that put alcibiades in the position that he's in. So, and then after all of that, um, there are many, many chances to make the, ex, the, the, the loss in Sicily much less bad than it ends up being. The mm -hmm. total, you know, Nicias could leave at, at, at a number of different points. He could listen to Demosthenes when he comes in. He could not ask for another reinforcement, getting the Athenians' hopes up. He could leave, you know, just like he needn't have gone, he could have left about three, four different times. Um, and in the end, doesn't even, even his retreat is, I mean, he, he retreats with some vigor is all you can really say about him, but that's misplaced because he actually doesn't even secure uh, as good an ending for his men that, as Demosthenes does for his. So, you know, I don't see one thing that justifies the last thing that Thucydides says about him, that he is the man who at least merited his fate um, <laughs> at the end of, at the end of book seven. So, yeah, that's, so that's my gripe 
against Nicias, but I just, you know, so a lot of this does seem to be his story, the, the Athenian failure in, in, uh, in Sicily seems to be Nicias' story. So uh, how, how does this all fit together? Like, how are we to understand it? Clearly, there's something about that erotic longing, which he doesn't share at the beginning, but then he, the least erotic of them all, if you will, uh, of the Athenians, seems to be guilty of, of really making that into a giant mess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, oh, go ahead. Oh, like I'm I'm rereading kind of um as you were talking uh 761 um through like 64 where Nicias is kind of rallying the troops and this is after their first uh failed attempt at sea to defeat the Syracusans and now they're bottled up. Um and you know, this is this is Nicias's character. I think in the original speech, and also you know during the actual campaign, is he is you know breaking another kind of military aphorism, which is brief every plan, like you know it's going to work. Um, and so he's you know talking, he's you know giving this rallying cry to the Athenians, and this you know what is inevitably going to be a last push to defeat the Syracusans, um, and it's all about the past and the future. It's not about what's right now. And, you know, for a soldier, like you really have to just focus on the right now. You know, you have to focus on what you're trying to accomplish, but you know, he keeps bringing up their first failed attempt. (laughs) And so in the back of, in the back of your soldier's minds, it's like, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. No, we got beat. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh no, we got beat. And then it's, you know, by the way, if you don't do this, if this doesn't work, they're going to sail against Athens. And so now you're in this future tense as well. And effective warfighting, I think, really requires you to be super present uh, in the present. And that spending too much of your mental energy in thinking about the past, uh, whether it's success or failure, or thinking about the future, whether that's success or failure, reduces your kind of capacity to focus on what's happening in the moment and to put all of your energy into making those decisions um, and acting and reacting and also forcing the enemy to react to you versus you reacting to them. And I think this is Nicias's character in the, <coughs> excuse me, in the initial speech um, and why Alcibiades kind of helps or carries the day Um, is that Alcibiades' speech is very seductive uh, and can be perceived in kind of a present tense, uh, even though it's like a future present. Whereas this, you know, Nicias is not briefing the plan that he, you know, is knows is going to work and he even brings up, he's like, by the way, if this doesn't work, we're going to retreat back to the land um, and we're going to, you know, form up uh, as a land army and march somewhere safe. And so now you have all these competing priorities and competing ideas, uh, you know, in your commander's heads and also in your grunt's heads, uh, you know, think it's multivariable calculus instead of close with and destroy the enemy by fire and maneuver, which if you're not just thinking about that in the moment in battle, um, you're not going to be as good at it as the people that are just going, I am going to win right now. And who cares about the future? Who cares about the past? So Nicias is breaking that adage of brief every plan like you know it's going to work and get people out of their heads. You know, this is true of sports too, right? I mean, when you talk about being, like I'm reading a 
weird book called the uh, inner game of tennis right now, which is not really about tennis. Um, and it's a huge kind of sports performance, um, you know, uh, canonical tome. And it's just all about getting people out of their head and just having them focus on exactly what's in the present and not to think too much. And I think that what Nikias is doing is requiring everybody in his army to think way too much. And so it's completely not surprising when it all goes bad because he's not, he, he's being an overly reasonable person and an overly rational person, which is the weakness that he portrayed in the initial speech as well. And people are just not going to respond to that as well. Well, I, I think I agree with you all the way up to the last thing you said. I think I might have an alternative explanation than overly reasonable or overly rational, but it seems to me exactly right that um, his head is not in the game, and so his soldiers' heads are not in the game, or rather, um, maybe this is even um, a more precise way to say it, his head is in two different games at once. Um, I think part of the reason why he keeps on mentioning the defeat is because he thinks of the defeat as a kind of victory, namely that it's a sign that the gods might be done punishing the Athenians. And so to the extent that he's pious, he's keeping score, I think, on two different levels. There's what's really happening on the battlefield, the real stuff, and then there's what that means with respect to the gods' view of the Athenians. And if you have those double levels going on, a victory on one level might look like a defeat on another or hubris on another and vice versa, right? And so I think he can't help but let this spill over into his speeches to the soldiers. And it wouldn't surprise me if the piety was just as confusing as it might be reassuring to his soldiers as well. Um, you can't really be sure that anything that happens on the ground really means what it seems to mean, according to this perspective. Yeah, so maybe not uh, uh, so much rationality as, as piety that, that seems to be driving this. Um, does, does that make sense? Or does that seem apt for his character? I, I, oh, that, that definitely. I think so, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Brian. Oh, no, that definitely makes sense. I mean, I was... <sighs> I'm, I'm going on to a, another podcast. Um, you're obviously my first love, Jeff. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I got invited to do a podcast. I'm most beautiful. <laughs> you're the most, you're the most beautiful. Um, I got invited to do another podcast on the Aubrey Maturin series. And we're going to do book five, The Fortune of War, and talk about intelligence tradecraft vis-a-vis um, oh. -vis Stephen Maturin, who is the intelligence agent uh, and main character, one of the main characters in the books. Um, and I, I, I really want to talk about the idea of agency, right? Um, that, you know, we use this word intelligence agent because you are not your own master, you know, that, that you are kind of assigned a task and it is left to you to figure out how to do that task with a great deal of latitude, but not doing the task really isn't an option. And so I wonder how much, um, you know, agency Nikias either feels he has um, or how much agency, like how much of his own agency to make this even more confusing, he is expressing in this battle when he is not bought in on it, you know? Um, right. And especially like it's going back to the first part of the reading, 
you know, if you are that committed to not doing this, if you've kind of spoken in front of a large crowd and said, this is a really bad idea, and that's probably known, you know, like it's in the Marine Corps, we call it, you know, the, the Lance Corporal Mafia. Mm. Um, like the Lance Corporals know you're not into this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they didn't have to be in the Senate. They didn't have to, you know, be standing around during the speeches. Um, like they would have, got, they would have found out. Uh, and so how much confidence would they have in Nikias knowing that he is, you know, somebody that spoke out very vehemently against this and how much did that impact, you know, the ultimate, you know, success or failure of the plan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in, in fact, there, there's there's a little there's a little section um, where we learn. That, so Nicias has already grounded the fleet and fortified an on for a, a terrible location, and and which was responsible for the 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 bad effects on 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 the navy in the first place. He did not finish the circumvallation walls, <laughs> um, and then he fell sick because he's always sick, so he's sickly. And then we, we heard that, um, and, and the other general that was with him at the time had died, Lomachus. And so the men are on their own. And at that point, actually make progress, right? And then Nicias gets better and it gets everything gets worse again. So yeah, they're, they're actually better off without him saying anything to your point and just being Athenians and, and kind of relying on their own their own uh, measures. I mean, some of this, what you're saying about, yeah, I mean, it does seem ill, but, you know, they're not a professional army, right? And, and, and generals are, are both civilian leaders and generals, right? And I think one of the, that, that's, that's causing the comparison to modern day warcraft to be a little bit harder to, to do in a straightforward way. Um, I mean, the other one of the other dynamics going on here, especially with Nicias, is he is afraid to go home without with a retreat, right? He knows he'll be the Athenians do like to take out their, you know, their bile on their generals, no matter what. So he probably would suffer. So, you know, someone like Demosthenes has has already taken a, a an exile on the chin. Thucydides had to take an exile on the chin. Alcibiades is taking his exile less well, but nonetheless, <laughs> you know, they, they deal with it. He does not want to be, uh, have any of his property confiscated. He does not want to be embarrassed. And that has something to do with w- not retreating when he's being begged to retreat by Demosthenes and Eurymedon. Um, and rather he writes that really weird letter to sort of say, I, you know, I'm still here don't punish me. So he's worried about being punished by the gods. He's worried about being punished by the Athenian demos. Those, those things are playing a role. Yeah. And his, uh, one of the remarks he makes in his first speech is that the unseen powers are the most uh, terrible or impressive ones. Right. So it looks like uh, in contrast to Alcibiades, he isn't so much a devotee of um, powers visible I guess you could call it, uh, and their beauty, right? He's much more uh, the kind of human being who fears the unseen and thinks insofar as something is unseen, it's more fearful. That might even go with his general sickliness that you mentioned, Andrea. Um, So let me see if I can bring this around. I was being a little cagey earlier in wondering whether the erotic character of the expedition meant that you could know it was uh, to fail in advance. 
Um, and maybe if we think that um, Alcibiades is a new Pericles, just on the basis of the occurrences of the words uh, of the word eros in, in connection with the two characters, uh, maybe that's a sign that the expedition uh, actually uh, could have succeeded and could be reasonably expected to, to succeed in advance were it not for the existence of Nicias and Nicias types in Athens. Um, is this a, a more fruitful way to kind of diagnose things without knowing how they actually turned out? That uh, maybe Nicias is behind the attempts to undermine Alcibiades and accuse him of impiety, but to the extent that there's a strong uh, strain of Nicias's character in the Athenians more generally, uh, we can't expect the expedition to succeed because it, the Athenians will undermine themselves. Is that the way to think about it? I guess my counter question or concern about that question would be um, just because Thucydides says that the, or I, I at least claim that he thinks it could have succeeded with Alcibiades at the helm and certainly maybe with just without Nicias in there, you know, that alone might've been enough. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that Thucydides is in favor of the Sicilian expedition. Right. I mean, because I guess what's the end game? Like, let's say you do win Sicily. Right. Right. What good does does that do? Uh, let's say it helps you scare the Spartans who are already kind of Nicias like. I mean, they're, they, he has some, you know, he's the most Spartan of the of the Athenians, as we're told. Right. And then what? Mm -hmm. You know, because you're, you're faced with that Periclean and now Alcibiadean dream of, you know, conquering evermore. Is there another place and another place? And I guess, what's it all for? Yeah, and this is probably a terrible time to bring it up because we're in the last couple of minutes, but um, as you're kind of describing Nicias, Jeff and Andrea, like I can't help but think of Brutus and Julius Caesar. Mm. Um, you know, he, this presented as this highly moral person who, you know, thinks only of the good with a capital G um, and ends up, you know, bringing about <laughs> the uh, destruction of kind of the Roman Republic f fully um, because he is so committed to his principles. Whereas, you know, the, the very flawed Mark Antony and Octavian, like who are, if we want to, if we want to use, continue to use the kind of Eros piece like both of these dudes like ride motorcycles and wear leather jackets and <laughs> you know <laughs> just give um kind of zero fucks for the the moral of their position uh and are simply attracted to the kind of um power um and and the kind of the sexual power or the power of eros um versus the power of um kind of rationality um, and it seems like Nicias is, is a very Brutus-like uh, character and kind of hemming and hawing and wondering about the gods and, you know, trying to be overly reasonable and probably staying up at nights and um, seeing the ghost of Alcibiades or something like that, <laughs> or, or at least the spiritual incarnation of Alcibiades in his tent going like, hmm, hmm, but you wish I was here now. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, this does leave us in a pretty uh, difficult strategic position, right? Because if you're going to only judge the wisdom of plans by their outcome, uh, that makes you not much of a, a, a strategist or a tactician. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to reinforce the point that you made, Jeff, about, um, and Andrew, you pointed this out too, of you know the being fearful of the gods, but also being fearful of returning to Athens at the same time, you know, that when you, when you guys were talking about that, it very much reminded me of uh, something my platoon commander at TBS, uh, the basic school used to say, and there was the, the our listeners are not going to like be able to see this, but he always used the physical cue of, you know, put your enemies on the horns of a dilemma, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like just give them two shitty options <laughs> that they have to kind of weigh. Uh, and if they're just reacting to you and trying to weigh these two shitty options, then you can impose your will on them that much easier. Mm. And so, you know, Nikias has these kind of two terrible options um, and is kind of trapped between them, yeah. basically allowing the enemy to dictate, you know, the terms. And But he surrendered the initiative to them because he's only got these two bad options to kind of weigh between. Right. It's it's almost as if he just, you know, he psychologically needed to take a kind of hair-shirted beating before he mm-hmm. was prepared to feel, because he, he's an Athenian and he's involved in all these things, but he wants to somehow feel pure enough to go. I really think that it's it's a personal versus a public spiritedness. I mean, to, you know, the, the Brutus reference, that may be where they're quite different, you know, there's a real difference here. Um, he thinks he's moral and and so forth, but his morality is sort of private and the mapping of it. I mean, that, that, that may be part of the interesting conundrum here. Alcibiades is, you know, motorcycle riding James Dean type, but you know, his argument and Thucydides, I don't think dismounts this argument is that he's actually is good for Athens, at least this Imperial Athens. He does, you know, it, it, it's not untrue that it can bask in his glory. And when he is glorious, so is Athens. Whereas Nicias, you know, he wants to be safe personally. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, does he even care for his men? It doesn't seem that way. You know, he, he in order to stay pure, he's willing to condemn, you know, 6,000 men to the worst possible fate. Mm-hmm. It, so how moral is that? Or, you know, there seems to at the very least be a real conflict between private and, and public morality there. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, a good note to end on. Uh, Andrea, thank you so much for coming back. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah thank yeah. you, Andrea and Brian. Yeah. 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 Thanks a ton. Okay, listeners, um, hopefully you're enjoying uh, all of our recent content. Uh, You can follow us online on our Facebook page, Combat Classics, on the website, combatclassics.org. Check us out. You can actually donate to us too because we're actually planning on upgrading some software here uh, to make our pods even more enjoyable. So if you choose to do that, you can do that on our website. Um, Thanks again, guys, and talk soon. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.